to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth, one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Luke, chapter 6, verse 4, as we follow along with today's lesson. Hunger overrides human need. God doesn't mean that the laws should, that should prevent us from taking care of basic needs. And, and that's never the intent or the purpose of the law. And uh, as I say, the law was intended to benefit man, not to hinder or hurt man. So he said unto them that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. So he said, I... <laughs> I have precedence over the Sabbath even. And so it came to pass on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue. We are told in the other Gospels that this was the synagogue in Capernaum. And he taught. And there was a man whose right hand was withered. Now only Luke tells us it was the right hand. Matthew and Mark tell of this incident, but you might figure that a doctor would note which hand it was. And Luke tells us it was the right hand that was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him, whether he would heal on the Sabbath day. And their purpose was that they might accuse him, might make accusations against him. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees quite often sat at the front of the congregation. The women were sitting on one side, the men were sitting on the other side. And they were there to make certain that the law was kept. And if a question came concerning the law, they would ask them as they sat there in these seats of judgment, more or less, uh, to oversee and to make sure everything went according to uh, the law. And so Jesus, realizing that they were watching him and that they were wondering whether or not he would heal this man on the Sabbath day because that was against their traditions. You could not heal on the Sabbath day. You could take whatever measures were necessary to preserve a person's life, but nothing towards healing. Had to wait until the Sabbath day was over before you could apply a bandage. Uh, You weren't to do anything to heal on the Sabbath day. And that was, again, you see, if, if human need supersedes and God's laws are for man's benefit, that, that goes against God's law. 
In fact, Jesus pointed out, you know, if you have an ox or a donkey that falls in a ditch because it's a Sabbath day, you don't leave it in the ditch and, and come back tomorrow to get it out. And, and if you have concern for a donkey that's hurting, how much more you should have concern for men who are hurting. And so it is interesting to me to note that the Pharisees and the scribes sort of associated Jesus with the man with the withered hand. That is, they knew that he would be interested in that man. They knew that Jesus could never face human blight without seeking to alleviate it. And here's a man with a blighted, withered hand, and they knew that Jesus would seek to help that man because of his condition. They knew that Jesus was interested in the man there in the congregation who had the greatest need. They understood that about Jesus. Sometimes, you see, we don't understand Jesus. When we come into the congregation of God's people, sometimes we feel like, oh, I really don't even belong here. We look around and everyone looks so holy and, and so spiritual and everybody is smiling and I feel so miserable and I really don't belong here. I'm in the wrong place. My needs are so desperate. My needs are so great. And these people seem to have it all together. Well, if you feel that way, cheer up. Jesus is more interested in you than everybody else. He's always interested in the person with the greatest need. And that man with the greatest need was the one that got Jesus' attention. And he was interested in him. And they knew that. The enemies of Jesus oftentimes understood him better than his own disciples or his own friends. And he knew their thoughts. He knew what they were thinking. He could see it, you know. And So he said to the man which had the withered hand, rise up and stand forth here in the middle. I mean, he's not going to do anything in the corner. He's not going to say, come outside. You know. <laughs> he's going to face them, you know, right? Stand here in the middle. And with this man standing there with his limp arm, you know, Jesus said unto them, these fellows who were there to keep order, the scribes and the Pharisees, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil? To save a life or to destroy it? It's the Sabbath day, granted. Is it lawful to do good or to do evil? You see, if it isn't your power to help a person and you refuse to help, that's evil. If it's within your power to save a person's life and you let them go, that's evil. If a person is drowning and, and, and you have the capacity to pull them out of the water but you just watch them drown, that's evil. Here was a man who was in desperate need. Jesus had the capacity to help him. And not to help him would be evil. And so he makes them face the issue that demonstrates the folly of their traditions. And of course, they really couldn't respond to that. 
It was the kind of logic that uh, defied response. And so looking round about upon them all, Mark said he was looking with anger. I mean, there was fire in his eyes. He was upset that they would withhold from this needy man just because it violated some dumb tradition that they had. And so looking upon them with anger, he said to the man, stretch forth your hand. Now, at this point, this man can do one of two things. He can argue with Jesus and tell him why he can't stretch forth his hand. He could tell him of the stroke that he had that paralyzed him or, he, or the injury that he sustained or whatever, whereby his hand became withered. And he could tell Jesus all the reasons why I can't do it. Or he can try to do it. He can will once more to stretch forth his hand. Though he had willed many times Previously, nothing happened. He can try once more, and he can will to stretch forth his hand. And he discovered the moment he willed to obey the command of Christ, though it was an impossible command, the moment he willed to obey, all that was necessary was given him to obey, and he stretched it forth, and it was whole like the other. Sometimes as the Lord faces the weakness in our life, and he commands us to be strong. We so often begin to argue with him and tell him why we're weak. How many times, Lord, I've tried. I just can't do it, Lord. I, I just have a weakness, Lord. And we're, we're giving him all the excuses why we can't obey. But you will discover if you will will to obey, everything necessary to obey will be given to you. That's the neat thing about the Lord. He doesn't command you to do anything but what he will not give you the capacity to do it if you will only be willing to do it. Now, the reaction of the scribes and Pharisees was they were filled with madness and they communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. From this point on, they said, we've got to get rid of this guy. This is where the plot began to, cru to, to crucify Jesus. Now it came to pass in those days, and I wrote out on my computer a whole neat little profile sketch of all the apostles, and I left it at home. <laughs> That's one of the problems of getting old, is that you begin to forget things. I was told this week concerning uh, this 50-year high school class reunion where the fellows were together in the kitchen talking and the ladies were in the next room. And uh, this one fellow said, uh, have you seen that new Walmart store that they've built? And the guy says, no, where is it? He said, oh, it's on that, that street. You know the street. It's, um, he said, what's that flower that has a long stem? 
And the guy says, a lily? No, no, not a lily. The, the stem has thorns on it. He says, a rose? Yeah, rose. That's it. Rose, where is that new Walmart store? <laughs> you have to be a little older to really appreciate that one. As I got to this scripture, I remembered, ooh, I forgot, you know. So it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain. And I'll give to you these in, in another, uh, I'll, I'll remember it and bring it, you know. Uh, I, I still remember everything, it just takes me a little longer. And it came to pass in those days that he went out into a mountain to pray and he continued all night in prayer to God. It is interesting that Luke, in presenting to us the human side of Jesus, gives us an insight into his prayer life that is not given to us in the other Gospels. It is Luke that tells us that when Jesus was baptized, as he was praying, the Holy Spirit descended upon him. Here, Luke lets us know that before choosing from the disciples 12 to be called apostles, he spent the night in prayer. How important in choosing the leadership to be directed by God, to spend the night in prayer. And so in the morning, he called unto him his disciples, and of course there were many disciples, and of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Now, it is interesting that of these twelve that he named apostles, if I would ask you to just name the twelve apostles, you would all probably start off pretty well with Peter, James, John, Andrew, uh, and, and from there, you see, we, we don't always remember the names of the others. And it's because we are told more concerning Peter, James, John, and Andrew than we are of the others. Some of them, it's almost as though they dropped out of the scene after Jesus named them apostles. We don't read, them, read of them doing anything. We don't read of uh, Thaddeus, who was also called Lebius. Uh, we don't read of him doing anything. And, and thus, uh, we're not familiar with him. Uh, thus, we wonder, did they do anything? <laughs> but it is interesting when we get to the book of Revelation and John takes us into the heavenly scene, the foundations of the wall are inscribed the names of the 12 apostles. So there is a very important role that they did play and it will come into play in the future. Now, here is where history does help us some, and from the uh, early traditions and history, written history of the church, we, we find a little bit about these 12 apostles, and the reason why we don't know of what they did 
from the biblical standpoint is that they didn't hang around Jerusalem. Thomas went to Syria, then to Pergia, and ultimately to India. And there evangelized. And in India today, they have the Church of Thomas, which they relate directly back to the ministry of Thomas. Now, all we know about Thomas is that he was sort of a melancholy. Uh, He was a doubter. When Jesus said, well, Lazarus is dead, he said, well, let's go so we can die with him. You know, I mean, sort of a melancholy. (laughs) And then when the disciples said, Jesus is risen, we've seen him. I'm not going to believe unless I can actually see it for myself, you know. And and so we, we only know that side of him, but we don't know how that he went to India and, of course, was crucified ultimately there in India. For the cause of Christ. And so uh, I, I did a little research and have a neat little personality sketch of each of these fellows, where they ministered, how, uh, and, and all of them met their death by violent means, with the exception of John, the beloved, who was arrested, went to Rome and uh, Dalmatian had him put in boiling oil. Uh, By a miracle, it didn't harm him. He was then put in prison, exiled actually to Patmos. When Nerva uh, replaced Dalmatian as the emperor of Rome, he then released John from his exile in Patmos where he went to Ephesus and he died at a ripe old age in Ephesus. And uh, Polycarp, Ignatius, uh, were a couple of his disciples who became bishops in uh, the early churches in Smyrna, uh, Polycarp and uh, Heriopolis for uh, Ignatius. So uh, there's interesting little uh, historic uh, sketches on these fellows. St. Andrew uh, was... Uh, crucified on a X kind of a cross when he came to Edessa. And that's uh, become sort of a popular name now, I think, from one of the new Walt Disney movies or something. Uh, but uh, he came to Edessa, and there they, they crucified him on a cross, which was sort of an X shape. Two of the arms of the cross were implanted in the ground, and that's where you get the St. Andrew's cross, the X-shaped cross, because he was crucified in in that kind of a X-shaped cross. So um, Jesus called unto him the disciples, of whom he chose 12, to be called apostles. Now, disciple is a learner, and there were many. An apostle is one who has been sent out and uh, called and sent out. So uh, of those, he chose 12 to be apostles. Simon, who was also named Peter. Jesus called him uh, Peter. Petros, little stone upon this rock, I'll build my church. Uh, the, the rock of Peter's confession, thou art the Christ. Andrew, his brother. Of course, we know quite a bit about Peter because... Uh, <laughs> He comes into the record quite a bit. He's an outspoken kind of a guy. He's uh, ready to act and 
He takes over leadership uh, capacities in the early church. Uh, Andrew, his brother, we don't know too much about Andrew, except that Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist, and Andrew brought his brother Peter to Jesus. He was the one that told Peter about Jesus. Come, uh, we've, you know, we've found the Messiah. And uh, Andrew seems to have the reputation for bringing people to Jesus. When there were the people that were there on the hillside hungry, been with Jesus all day, nothing to eat. And Jesus said, well, have him sit down. He said, do you have any food? And Andrew said, well, there's a little boy here with five loaves and two fish, but that's nothing with this crowd. And uh, so he brought the little boy to Jesus. Later on, uh, we find that there were Greeks who came to Philip, and they said, we want to see Jesus. Philip came to Andrew, and Andrew came to Jesus and told him about these Greeks that were wanting to see him. Uh, there is, of course, James and John, who Jesus called the uh, sons of thunder. These were the guys who were ready to call down fire upon uh, those that would oppose Jesus, though, uh, where they didn't want to receive Jesus. They, they were ready to call down fire. Uh, they, of course, were fishermen. They were partners with Peter, and uh, their father's name was Zebedee. Uh, their mother's name was Salome. She was there at the cross when Jesus was crucified and one of the first women to come to the tomb. And then Matthew, who we studied last week, uh, he was a tax collector, also known as Levi. Then there was Thomas, of which we spoke earlier, and then James, the son of Alphaeus. Now, this is interesting because Matthew is also called the son of Alphaeus. Could it be that Matthew and this other James were brothers? We don't know for sure, but it's possible they are both called sons of Alphaeus. Now, uh, this James is also called James the Less. Uh, the word less in Greek is actually little, so he was probably a short little guy, and so they called him James the Little. Uh, in contrast to James, the brother of John, who was probably bigger and more ruddy, being a fisherman. And uh, then there was Simon the Zelotes, or the Zealot. Now, the Zealot was a, a group of extreme nationalists. They would take vows to kill a Roman whenever they had a chance. These guys carried daggers under their cloaks at all times. And, and they, they vowed to kill every Roman they could get hold of. Now, Matthew was a tax collector and considered a collaborator of Rome and hated, uh, because he was a tax collector, by the common people and more so by the zealots. Interesting that Jesus would pick to be his companions a uh, zealot and a tax collector, but it's amazing the opposites that can come together in Jesus, how he is the common denominator and brings all men together. And then there was Judas, who is also called not Iscariot, uh, Judas who was the brother of James. Now, is this James the less? We don't know. If it is, then Judas, James, and Matthew could perhaps be brothers. 
there are other James and Judes in the Bible. Uh, there is the author of the book of James, which is not uh, the uh, James that we find in uh, the brother of John, but the author of the book of James, who is thought maybe to be the brother or stepbrother of Jesus. For we know that Jesus had several brothers and uh, two of their names were James and Judah. And the book of Jude in the New Testament, he identifies himself as the brother of James. And so uh, Judas, the brother of James. The only thing we know about this Judas actually is in the 14th chapter of Acts when Jesus said, and he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he that... He it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and we shall come and manifest ourselves to him. He said, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So that's his big thing, you know. That's, that's all we know from a biblical standpoint about Judas, except that he was numbered with the apostles. So uh, he's the brother of James. And then the other Judas, who we know uh, because of his dastardly deed, Judas Iscariot, uh, who uh, we are told, Jesus said, have I not chosen 12 of you and one of you is the devil? And Jesus also called him the son of, per or no, Paul refers to him, no, Jesus referred to him as the son of perdition. Paul refers to the Antichrist as the son of perdition. Uh, but uh, then, um, we know that he was the treasurer, more or less. He carried the purse, John tells us. And when that woman poured the costly perfume on Jesus, he was the one that said, why this waste? We could have taken this perfume and sold it for hundreds of dollars and given the money to the poor. And John said it, he didn't say that because he was interested in the poor, but that he was keeping the money, he was the treasure, and he was thieving out of the funds. He was embezzling. And so uh, he was an embezzler. He was greedy. He was the one who then went to the rulers and made a uh, covenant with them to reveal where they could arrest Jesus in private. For 30 pieces of silver, he would turn Jesus over to them and, of course, came then into the garden, leading the soldiers and betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And so uh, we know then that afterwards he took the money back to the priest, tried to return it. They refused to take it. He threw it on the floor and went out and hung himself. Uh, a, a sad story, Judas Iscariot. Uh, we are told by John that Jesus knew from the beginning who it was that would betray him. He was picked and perhaps even created by God for this purpose. It could be that he was indeed a, a devil and uh, sort of an incarnate devil, but chosen and picked for this purpose to fulfill the scriptures that he would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver and, and so forth. So we read that after he had gone into the mountain to pray and now he comes down, we read, in, 
stood in the plain. Now, what Jesus is going to say in the next section is very similar to what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. But you see, he is saying these same things, but in a different place. When he was on the Mount, he called his disciples and he spoke to them. And he taught them, saying, he sat down and taught the disciples. Here he's speaking to a great multitude of people. And it's on the plains. But these are basic truths, and basic truths bear repeating. And so Jesus no doubt repeated these truths many times. In each community where he would go, he would probably share a part of these truths, or all of these truths. These are basic truths about the kingdom of God and who is going to inhabit the kingdom of God. So he came down with them and he stood in the plain. And the company of his disciples and a great multitude of people, you see, not just the disciples, now a great multitude out of all of Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, which came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. The twofold purpose. They wanted to hear Jesus, but many of them were in need and wanted to be healed of their diseases. And they that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude just sought to touch him. Can you imagine what that would be? Thousands of people crowding around you, everyone trying to get close enough to touch you. Because in touching Jesus, there was virtue that went out from Jesus, and, and the people would be healed. And so it, it must have been extremely inconvenient and uncomfortable to be constantly shoved, to have people constantly grabbing you. What would you do if everywhere you went, people would be crowding around grabbing you? I'm sure that you'd say, leave me alone. <laughs> Give me space, you know. But we never read of Jesus reacting in that way. In fact, it always tells us that he looked with compassion on them. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd, just wondering, searching. And so he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and he said, Blessed be ye poor. Wait a minute, Lord. Blessed be ye poor. Now, this is in contrast to verse 24 where he said, But woe unto you that are rich. So blessed are the poor and woe to the rich. Blessed be you poor because yours is the kingdom of of God. Matthew tells us that Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And uh, the poverty of spirit is something that is considered a plus in the kingdom of God, but it's considered a negative in the world. The man who is humble, or perhaps a better word, meek, is oftentimes looked upon with disdain by the world, but God looks upon him with favor. Blessed are ye that hunger now. That goes often with poverty. You shall be filled. Blessed are you that weep now. 
for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men shall hate you and will separate you from their company and will reproach you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. You as a Christian living in a non-Christian world are living in a foreign environment. And Jesus said, marvel not if the world hates you. They hated me. You're not greater than the master. If they did not receive me, they're not going to receive you. Don't expect to win Mr. Popularity Contest in the world. Because there is that friction and natural antagonism of the world towards the righteous. And they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. In this world, Jesus said, you will have persecution, tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So when you are reproached for Christ's sake, when people say evil against you because of your Christian witness, oh, there he goes. Jesus people won't listen to dirty jokes and all, you know, and, and they begin to slur you, call you DJ because you don't listen to dirty jokes and this kind of stuff. Rejoice, Jesus said in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner did their fathers unto the prophets those who speak forth God's truth are not popular. Even among the nation of Israel, the true prophets of God were often persecuted. Jeremiah, one of the problems he faced was, and one of the difficulties of his ministry was that there were a lot of false prophets that were contradicting what Jeremiah was saying. Jeremiah was saying, because of your sin, because of your evil, because of your wicked ways, God's going to let the Babylonians conquer you, and you're going to be carried away to Babylon as captives. The false prophet saying, that's not so. The Babylonians will never shoot an arrow into the city, you know, and, and they were giving all kinds of false assurances to the people, uh, you know, assuring them that God was going to protect them and all. You don't have to worry about the Babylonians. And thus there was no repentance. There was no turning to God. And they became a bane to the prophet of God, and they persecuted the prophet of God because of the ill report that he was bringing to them. He was telling them that, look, God isn't pleased with this kind of living. And there are those today that, that they don't want to hear that God is displeased with what I'm doing. They want to sin with impunity. And especially the homosexual community, they don't want to be condemned. They don't want to be told that that is sinful, that is wrong, that's against the scriptures. And, and so they have their own churches where they have their false prophets that say, anything, brother, that you do, you know, just if you feel good. And, and, they, and they come down and, and blow whistles and, and get upset down here. Because we dare to speak out what God's word has to say. And that offends people. 
And so the scripture said that when they really start getting on your case, rejoice. They, they did this to, their fathers did this to the, to the true prophets of God. But in contrast to blessed are ye, he said, woe unto you that are rich, for you have received your consolation. Uh, it's sort of, you've received your reward or in modern parlance, hey, you've had it. You know, it's been good. Woe unto you that are full, you will hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you. For so did their fathers to the false prophets. Well, be careful when the world begins to make you the man of the year. Whoops, sorry about that. Uh, I don't know if you know who Time's new man of the year is, but it was just announced. But I didn't, it was not really, I didn't mean that. And uh, it's not, a, it wasn't an intentional slur. And when you find out who the Time man of the year is, you'll understand what I'm saying. Oh, boy. Foot and mouth syndrome, you know. Now get letters on this. And, all right, I'll tell you, it's a pope. <laughs> but I say unto you who will hear it, if you'll hear it, this is what I say to you. Love your enemies. Do good to those that hate you. Bless them that curse you. And pray for those who despitefully use you. And unto him that smiteth thee on the one cheek, offer also the other. Him that would take away your cloak, don't forbid him to take your coat also. Give to every man that asks of thee. And of him that takes away thy goods, don't ask for them again. And as you would that men should do to you, do ye also to them likewise. And as you look at that, you say, impossible. Not natural. It's not natural to love your enemies and to do good to those that hate you and to bless them that curse you. And I agree, it isn't natural, it's supernatural. And if you try to do it in the natural, you're going to find yourself frustrated and miserable. You cannot do it apart from the work of the Holy Spirit within your heart, but you need to be open that the Holy Spirit might work in your heart. And if you find that there is someone that you just can't stand, you hate the thought of them, they so irritate you, they so go against your grain that you find that you're constantly being irritated by by just thinking about them, then what you must do is say, Lord, I recognize this is wrong. This is sin. You don't want me to have this attitude. Lord, help me. Plant your love in my heart for them. And allow God to do it. You can't do it yourself. Don't Try and reform, don't say, oh, I'm going to love them. I'm going to love them. I'm just going to love them. Well, yes, there is some good about them, and it's got to be some good. I, I just haven't discovered it yet. But, you know, and, and I'm going to love them. Next time I see them, I'm going to just, you know, going to be, you know, I'm just going to be loving to them. And, 
You know, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it, you know. And so next time you see them, you go up and you smile and you say, hi, how you doing today? And they say, didn't you brush your teeth? How come they're so yellow? You think, you dirty, you know. <laughs> and all your resolve is to bloop, you know. Down the tube. You can't do it. It's just not in you. Only God can do it as he works in you by his spirit. And that's why we have to turn the job over to the spirit. It's too big for us. But the beautiful thing is God will do it in us. God will do for us what we can't do for ourselves. Now, you see, we have the same case here. Jesus is making impossible demands, just as impossible as the guy. He said, stretch forth your hand. I can't. It's withered. What's the matter with you? Can't you see? You know, things withered. Uh, and, and just as that was an impossible command, because he willed to obey it, God gave him the power. These are impossible commands, but if you will will to obey it, the Lord will do it for you. He'll give you the capacity to do this. Now, as a Christian, you are to be more than everybody else. For if you love those which love you, what thank have you? What? That's no big deal. For sinners also love those that love them. I mean, you're not, you're not proving anything. You're supposed to be more as a child of God. And if you do good to those that do good to you, no big deal. For sinners also do the same. And if you lend only to those that you hope to get the money back again, sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But you, love your enemies and do good. Lend, hoping for nothing again, and your reward shall be great, and you will be the children of the highest. For he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. You see, God, our Heavenly Father, he's kind. Look how he gives to people and nothing in return how he gives to people life and health and so much, and they never, they never say thank you, Lord. They never recognize God's blessing. They, they never stop to thank the Lord. They take all of these things for granted. And yet God, you know, blesses them and, and, and provides for them and all, and, and there's no thanks. And thus, as his children, being like our Father, we need to follow this example. But as I said, you can't do it apart from him and his help. Be therefore merciful. Again, God, our example, as your father in heaven, or as your father is merciful. Now he says, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you shall be forgiven. So here are things where it, it comes back to you. Judge not, and you won't be judged. Don't condemn, and you won't be condemned. And the positive, forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it shall be given unto you good measure, Pressed down, shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that you meet it out, it shall be measured to you again. Now, if you're 
giving out love in little drops, love will come back to you in little drops. If you're giving out love by the bucket full, it's going to come back to you by the bucket full. Whatever measure you made, you know, you meet it up, that's the way it's going to come back. It's just the law of uh, reciprocity. It just, you know, the return. And in the measure that you do it, it comes back to you. And so he spoke a parable unto them. He said, Can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall in the ditch? And the disciple is not above his master, but everyone that is perfect or complete will be like his master, and that's the whole issue, to be like Jesus. And if you will be complete, you will be like your master. And why do you behold the moat or sliver, or speck of dust, perhaps. Why do you behold the speck of dust that is in your brother's eye, but you don't perceive the six by 12 that's in your eye, (laughs) the beam? Either how can you say to your brother, hey, brother, let me get that speck or that speck of dust out of your eye when you behold not the beam that is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First cast the beam out of your own eye and then you will be able to see clearly to pull the sliver that is in your brother's eye. So it's so human nature, isn't it? Uh, I heard Dr. Dobson this past week as he was on his program and he was talking about this fellow in college. I think I mentioned it Thursday night. But he was talking about this fellow in college that he hated. And, and he just couldn't stand him. And just recently he got together with this fellow and, and he said, you know, I've got to confess something to you. He said, I've got it. He said, when we were in college together, I hated you. And he said... Knowing that you were here, I I wrote down the reasons why I hated you. And he said, this is why I hated you. And he read off the reasons. And and the fellow said to Dr. Dobson, well, to tell you the truth, I hated you. And for the very same reasons that you have written. And he said he realized that he was actually looking in a mirror and he didn't like what he saw. But because it was in the other fellow, he hated him, you know. We're so prone to coddle ourselves and our little faults. You know, it's all right if I do it, but don't you do it, you know. <laughs> and, and when we see others doing, and, and that's why parents so often get upset with their kids. Too much like your dad. And and you hate to see your weaknesses in someone else, you know. And and so we're so skillful, we think, in taking the sliver out of our brother's eye. But in reality, we've got this four by 12 in our own eye, you know. and, And so first he said, take the beam out of your own eye, and then you'll be able to see clearly to take the sliver out. You hypocrites, he said. And then he said, For a good tree bringeth not forth corrupt fruit, neither doth a corrupt tree bring forth 
good fruit. Every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. And a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good. What is the fruit of your life? Is it love? Is it kindness? Is it graciousness? Merciful? Or is there anger? Is there judgment? Is there condemnation? See, this is the fruit that he's talking about. And a good tree brings forth good fruit. Corrupt tree brings forth corrupt fruit. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What's in your heart is revealed so often by what you say in the unguarded moments. Now, many times we are cultured enough to guard what we say. You know, we don't, we don't just tell a person, uh, you know, sometimes, well, there are some people, I want to give you a piece of my mind. Well, are you sure you can afford it, you know? <laughs> <It's> just. <laughs> and then having said all of these things, Jesus said, and why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? In other words, I'm not just saying these as, as wonderful platitudes. You need to do them. James said, be doers of the word and not hearers only. For a man who uh, is just a hearer but not a doer is like a man who's looking in a mirror, sees the truth, but then he goes away and forgets what he saw. Immediately, he forgets what was revealed there in the mirror. And, and so Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, if you don't do the things that I say? And, and I might say that uh, calling him Lord, Lord, isn't going to buy you anything unless you do do the things he says. He said, in that day, many will come saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. You know, did we not prophesy in your name and do wonderful works, heal people and all in your name? And he said, I never knew you. You call me Lord, Lord, but you weren't obeying the things that I said. And so Jesus then gives another parable. He said, whosoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, that's the key, and does them, I will show you to whom he is like. He's like a man which built a house and dug deep, and he laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose and the stream beat vehemently upon the house, it could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. This is the man who hears the word and obeys, who does it. But he that hears and doesn't do it is like a man without a foundation. And he builds a house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So the importance of the foundation in our lives built upon the rock Jesus Christ 
a complete trust in him. No confidence in ourselves or in our own flesh, but our trust is in him, the rock, and I build my house, my faith on him, reflected in my doing the things that he commands. And it's manifested in the actual doing of it. Because if you hear it, you say, oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, that's good. Oh, yes, I think a person should do that. That's, that's a good thing, yes. But if you don't do it, it's sort of a deceptive thing because you say, well, yes, I believe that. Uh-huh. Yes, I believe you should love your enemy. Mm-hmm. But if you hate them, then, you know, uh, when, when the real test comes, boom, the house is going to go. I mean, it may look good, you may smile and look good, but when the real test comes, when it's really, you know, the rubber hits the road, man, you're, you're finished, it's gone. Because there's no real foundation there in Christ. You have to dig deep, lay the foundation, and then it will follow the works, the doing of the things he said. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Luke in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on Jesus and the centurion servant. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Luke 6 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, thank you again for the mirror. Help us, Lord, to see the truth. May we react and respond to the truth. In Jesus' name. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Sometimes it's difficult to celebrate the holidays like Christmas or New Year's Eve because of a recent death in the family or a sudden tragedy that's happened. And it's in times like this that we want to be used by God to bring encouragement, hope, and most of all, love to our family and friends who are going through a hardship. That's why I'd like to tell you about a book by Chuck Smith called When the Storm Hits. I'm amazed when I read this book that it's able to encourage and strengthen a person and persuade them to look to Jesus and not at their problem. 
It encourages us to be patient, not to lose hope, and when the storm hits, to get anchored on Jesus, the rock, and don't let go. To order a copy of Chuck Smith's book, When the Storm Hits, please call the Word for Today at 800-272-9673, or you can visit us online to read a preview of the book by visiting thewordfortoday.org.